If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Accept no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? Exhausted, but perhaps less exhausted than last week. How about you, Leslie? I'm still kind of reeling from the election high. Um, Yeah. Well, let's let's acknowledge that some some of our listeners might not be on a high, but others probably are, and so... Basically, I think we all just want it to be over, but so far it's actually not over. So one step at a time. (laughs) One step at a time. Well, let's enough politics and let's go right into headlines. Leading off. And there's a lot of stuff this week. I mean, seriously, busy, busy, busy. On the renewal side, Netflix has picked up Emily in Paris, or as their Twitter feed attempted to tell us, it should actually be pronounced Emily in Paris. And I'm never going to do that again uh, for a second season and the Umbrella Academy for a third. Uh, Amazon's IMDb TV platform has handed out a second season renewal to the drama Alex Ryder, which is a little bit confusing to me because when I was getting ready to review the show, it said it was already renewed. So an official second season renewal. That's right. Yes, because it's already aired in other parts of the world. So here it's renewed for season two. So on the new series front, Arnold Schwarzenegger is returning to TV and will star in a spy thriller for Netflix at CBS. Chuck Lorre now has six shows and five on the network with the order for multi-camera comedy United States of Al on the unscripted side. ABC has added Celebrity Wheel of Fortune to go alongside such shows as Celebrity Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Celebrity Family Viewed. I'm sensing a theme, Dan. Celebrities TV's top five coming soon with brand new, more famous hosts. <laughs> on the casting front, the Suicide Squad TV spinoff on HBO Max has cast Danielle Brooks, Robert Patrick, Jennifer Holland, and Chris Conrad. Over at Apple, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller's comedy The After Party has drawn an all-star cast that includes Tiffany Haddish, Dave Franco, Ike Barinholtz, Solana Glazer, Sam Richardson, Chloe Zhao, and Ben Schwartz. Elsewhere at Apple, Katherine Hahn and Casey Wilson will star alongside Wolf Ferrell and Paul Rudd in The Shrink Next Door. And wrapping up headlines, HBO has canceled The Outsider after one season. I had thought it was a limited series to begin with. I feel like we've had a lot of that in recent months, people canceling things that really didn't need to go on anyway. Yes. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, Alex Trebek. The admired host of Jeopardy! passed away November 8th after battling pancreatic cancer for more than a year. The longtime host of the syndicated trivia show filmed his last episode on October 29th. New episodes featuring Trebek will air through December 25th. Dan, this is just a loss that's hard to to really describe. It it is. This is is a man who hosted the show going back to 1984, uh, and this is just a show that was... Week in and week out and day in and day out, a part of people's lives and a part of people's 
dinner plans, a part of people's evening wind down. It was simply a part of people's routines. There are countless people for whom Jeopardy was as much a part of their day as coffee in the morning and uh, melatonin at night. So, you know, it is it is a, a thing that you can't replace. I mean, they will replace him and we'll talk about this later in the in this segment. But the things he brought to this show and the way his presence came to define the show and came to define why people watched it, why people wanted to be on it. He was so open and gave the impression either of being so smart or of being so prepared. And the answer was really the latter. He he was simply a man who wanted to do his job well and made sure he never did his job badly. It's a it's a model. And the way that he handled his cancer and the way that he handled his cancer in the public eye and the way that he kept working and kept talking to people and kept reassuring people, kept informing people. It was a it was a model of a of a certain way of, you know, dealing with a horrible disease that there's no right way to, you know, deal with in the public eye. Um, But he was he was just beloved and respected and admired. I've, I have, you know, I assume you do as well. I have many friends who appeared on Jeopardy and, and every single one of them is only still in awe of him after having spent the time with him, which is pretty remarkable. You know, this is, this is a man who you could listen to countless people in town talk about him and his work ethic and his professionalism. And I think you could probably go a long time before anyone said a negative word. I I have never heard a negative word about Alex Trebek. And that is remarkable. And yeah, yeah. I, my, my, one of my favorite memories is, is when he came to TCA and that was, was that January this year? It really was. Yeah, when you talk it about it as your like favorite memory. Before. Yeah. But You're referring to, to, to have, January. Yes. The, the entire ballroom, 200 plus members of the press corps, just completely wrapped around his, his finger, just waiting with bated breath for every single thing that he said. And it was just, I've never seen that, that room respond that way to someone like that. And it was just, it was really special to, to be there for that and to see the grace and dignity with which he held, not just his, his colleagues that he shared the stage with there. He was there for the tournament of champions, but, but also the, the regard that he had for the, for reporters and critics alike. Like it was just, I, you know, it was a, a two way road of respect and um, I'll never forget that. It really was. And, and I think that played a, a large role in, you know, sort of just reminding us of how great he was. And he won the TCA Awards Lifetime Achievement Award uh, late this summer, and he was able to accept it. And his acceptance speech was 95 percent being impressed with the other people who had won the awards and getting to be in the context with them. And yeah, and, and you know, as I talked in, about in my tribute on THR, he was also incredibly good at playing off of the image we all had of him, whether it was on Cheers or whether it was on the X-Files or the countless things that he appeared in as Alex Trebek. He always made things funnier with his cameo appearances, which is not true with everybody who appears in things as themselves. He was he was also a very good actor, maybe not in the Shakespearean way, but in a he always made it seem like he was improving the things he did. And uh yeah, it just a, a tremendous legacy. And it's just all of this makes it so hard for producers, Sony, TV, 
to come up with a, a, a replacement. The studio for, you know, at, at press time has declined to announce plans for a new host. But Dan, you know, everyone's already kind of speculating or throwing out their two cents. What do you think? I mean, a lot of people are saying Ken Jennings, but he's also committed to doing another another show for ABC called The Chase and where, where he's one of the, the quiz masters alongside his fellow Jeopardy Tournament of Champions winners. It's such it's such a tough job, and it's and it's probably such a a thankless job. And also, I wrote about this in my THR tribute that the the mo that everyone has had in recent years when it comes to game shows is let's get the biggest star we can find who seems like kind of a fit. And sometimes it works out very well. A lot of these star hosts are very good. Some of them are fairly forgettable. Uh, to me, the solution is probably not a big star. I, that that would be the first thing I would say. And so a lot of the names that are getting thrown around are probably too big. I don't necessarily think that someone like Anderson Cooper, if that's what he wanted to do, would be a bad pick. I, I think that he has some of the same personality traits as Alex Trebek. If that were the thing he wanted to do with the next chapter of his career, I would say that might be interesting. Uh, but it's just it's it's not as easy as people from the outside are going to think. It's not as easy as finding someone who seems like they're smart or finding someone who seems like they're affable or finding someone who seems like they can maintain the prestige of this show, because this is a show that that really does work on prestige in a way that a lot of game shows don't, you know, God love supermarket sweep or something like that. It's not a prestige show. It's a chaos show. And this and so you need a host who can feed into and out of the chaos. So Leslie Jones is perfect. But for a show like Jeopardy, you, you can't have that. Not if you wanted to run for 36 more years. If you just wanted to run as a curiosity for six months, sure, get the biggest star you can find. Get Tom Cruise to host Jeopardy. Who cares? But if you think that you want the show and its veneer to remain intact, you, you have to you have to figure out someone who is understated in the way that Alex Trebek was and a big star isn't going to be that. I, I don't know, you know, and then you and then you get the ridiculous things like I definitely got a press release today saying Donald Trump as a as a dark horse candidate. And and that's just idiotic. And no one at Sony is going to be so stupid as to even consider that. I mean, let's be I honest, mean, that, <laughs> that would be he's he's I, and I say this as someone, you know, yes, I'm a Democrat, <laughs> but I can also separate that and say Donald Trump. At, on any TV show or on any network is kryptonite right now. So, you know, you just think think back to when ABC put Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars and what that backlash was. So, no, yeah. and you, but you, but you don't. I mean, even leaving that aside, you just don't want someone who brings. You don't want someone who brings baggage. You you really don't. And that's why even someone like a George Stephanopoulos, who absolutely conveys a similar sense of erudition and professionalism and probably would do a fine job, even he might bring too much baggage with him. I, I so I, I don't know. It's it's a tough task. The the answer really may be to find someone who people generally don't know. And even that, you're gonna have people freak out because they don't know them and no one's going to remember that Alex Trebek was he was a game show host before it. That's that's what his job was. He was a Canadian TV presenter and a game show host. So it's not like he was the biggest star in the world when he was tapped to host Jeopardy. He just became 
Jeopardy host Alex Trebek. So, yeah, it's it's tough. And and, you know, the, the show, regardless of who hosts it next, is going to be Alex Trebek's Jeopardy. It's it's not suddenly going to become somebody else's Jeopardy. Right. But, you know, the candidates that you've you've mentioned are both, you know, white men. But are there is there a woman or a person of color that you could see who could be someone that 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 should be considered? Oh, of course. And I think probably actually that's the that is the easiest and best way to do it, wherein you're not going to have someone immediately compared to Alex Trebek. I mean, honestly, if, if, who any white man who you put in that chair and there's not actually a chair because he stands. But any white man who you put in that job is immediately going to be compared to Alex Trebek. Whereas if you find a woman or a person of color, at least they get to carve it out themselves. And sure, there will be plenty of people on Twitter who will be contemptuous and awful because that's the way Twitter operates. But but I think finding someone with the right, you know, it's again, it's it's the class he brought to it. And so it can't be something like, you know, Jane Lynch is a great game show host. She really is very good at that job. This would be a bad match for somebody like Jane Lynch. So you have to you just have to go down the list of people and say, who is the person who has the respectability, who people will buy? Steve Harvey is a great game show host. He would be a horrible Jeopardy host. It's it's just hard. And I'm glad it's not my job because it's it's a totally, you know, finding him, the host, not hosting Jeopardy. I wouldn't want to do that either. But <laughs> but but I'm glad it's yeah. not my job to try to find that person because there's no way there's going to be a good answer immediately. It could just turn out that down the road people simply come to accept it. Like when Drew Carey took over for Bob Barker, which is a completely different job, there there was a general sense, oh, he can't be Bob Barker. And now years later, I think when people watch Price is Right, Drew Carey feels roughly right there. And uh, and so, you you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a win that everyone agrees was a win on day number one. And probably it shouldn't be probably the person who gets the hype because people will turn out for a couple of weeks to see what the person's like isn't going to be the right person. It's It's going to be the person who you can imagine doing this for a long haul and who won't decide that they have better things to do with than Jeopardy. Alex Trebek might have gotten better offers, but he was going to host Jeopardy as long as he possibly could. And, you know, right up until the end, which is remarkable and admirable. And it shows his love for the job that he had. And uh, you, you need someone who might have a similar approach. Yeah, that that that's just an incredible work ethic. So, well, up next, it's the end of an era at the CW. Number two. Supernatural will wrap its 15th season next week. The series, which stars Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles and Misha Collins, is the network's longest running scripted original and the last remaining show from the former WB network. It has aired nearly 330 episodes. And here to join us this week to bid farewell to the hit series is CW CEO Mark Pedowitz. Thanks for joining us, Mark. That's good to be here. It's good to see people again. <laughs> As far as it goes. Prefer to have done this in person if you really want to know the truth. Maybe sometime next year. Yes. Um, We're getting started. You know, in a larger scheme of things, you know, Supernatural is the last holdover from the WB Network era uh, that preceded the CW. But what can you say about how much this show has meant to this network? It's a lot of the foundation uh, in many, many ways. Uh, I've been there now nine plus years and 
I had happened to have been a fan, as people have heard before I got there, but then even as a fan, I was watching one out of every couple of episodes. Uh, once I started with the company, I did the six-year catch-up, uh, which I was able to do by <laughs> DVD before it went on Netflix. Uh, look, I'm a huge fan of the show. The show was a cornerstone to this, what this company, what this network has meant. When Arrow came on, there was only one show to place it with, which was Supernatural. Uh, luckily, the first Netflix deal was done. There was huge binging on Supernatural for the first six seasons. So when it paired with Arrow, we had the makings of, of a night, a very strong night. Since that time, uh, and Paul Hewitt, as you can imagine, head of PR, can take you through each and every show, it has been basically either the lead-in or lead-out to almost the entire schedule. It has made successes out of shows that might not have been sampled, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that Supernatural brought in an audience that demographically was 50-50, male to female. It was an audience that was passionate, they were willing to sample stuff that was leading in or leading out off of Supernatural, and, and for that, I'll miss it because it made sure that our programming got exposed to an audience. And it was also a show that you guys were able to move around the schedule. But of course, there was the time when it moved to Friday nights. And at that point, people were like, oh, Friday nights means it's not going to succeed. It means it's dead. And it's the rare show that not only survived on Friday nights, but thrived on Friday nights and then moved back into the regular schedule. So talk a bit about sort of how versatile the show has been and why you think it survived that brief Friday night run. It, it survived the brief Friday night run because it had in front of it and as part of Smallville was there that when I first arrived. Uh, we were able... It, it, it has an audience that believed in the two brothers. They believed in the mythology. And let, let's be candid. Jared and Jensen, in real life, have become like brothers. In the series, they were remarkable. Then you added Misha and Mark Shepard and everything that went with it. So the show had this feeling and connection to the audience who watched it. Coupled with, we were lucky. That first Netflix deal allowed it to be binged. It allowed it to be experienced by an audience that did not see it when it was on linear. And that added another moment in time. With Arrow, when we were able to move it, it was compatible. Now, it has been on, I am told. I believe every time period. It was <laughs> even on prior to, even prior to my coming, I was just told this, at the last senior staff meeting, and actually on the old WB, it was on that five to seven time period when they were doing repeats. So they actually <laughs> did appear at, at one point on Sunday. It's been a running joke at press tours for, I would say, your entire tenure. The how much longer is Supernatural going to go on? And your answer has always been the same. And I will let you give the answer now if you want to. Which uh, you like to simple as long as the boys as long as the boys wanted to continue, <laughs> we were willing to order it. So that is the answer that you gave us. I would say about 15 press tours in a row. How unprecedented. It was like you just started in your opening remarks. You would just start just say it without even being asked. That's how much of like a running gag it became. I, I, uh, I, I know tour. it was. But Twice you knew, a year. Yeah. But you knew one of your compatriots was going to ask me the question. So why did I just answer it ahead of time? 
Right. It's like every ABC exec being asked how, how long Grey's Anatomy is going to run. And, and their answer is similar to yours, as long as Ellen Pompeo wants to do it. Same idea. That's how much these these shows mean to. to and to, and let us not forget, I ran the studio when it first started. That's well, right. How unprecedented is that as a as a stand for you as a network executive to be able to know you have this show that will that can go as long as the boys want it to go? It gives you security. It gives you, you know, you have a quality piece of material, quality creative piece of material that allows you to figure out your schedule. It allows you to put other shows with it. It allows you peace of mind because, and there's something else about Supernatural. What Jared and Jensen ended up doing over the years being there, and you probably heard this, Leslie, you know, up, up until this year, I'd visit all the shows and, and sit and have meals with all, the, all, the, all this cast and many of the showrunners. What Jared and Jensen did, they acted as the number one on the call sheet for all CW shows. They, particularly up in Vancouver, they imparted their knowledge, they imparted their professionalism. It made a huge difference. Couldn't ask for better, better yeah. team, better teammates and better people to work with. So as much as they set the tone for, you know, for how to lead as a show on a network that it, that often features a lot of up and coming stars, especially at the top of the call or near the top of the call sheet, you know, on, on the flip side, programming wise, how has this show really helped you as an executive figure out what works and what doesn't work on the, on, on the network, especially when it comes to like the tonal stuff that you're looking for in some of, in some of your programming? Uh, because the show had a balanced audience, you were able to try things with it that were not just genre programming. So you could sense, get a sense, was that audience coming there? Did it help it enough? So it, it enabled you to do things that you couldn't have done otherwise with another show. It wasn't just, some shows never, never can lead out to make another show work or lead in. Supernatural never had that issue. They, it always acted, uh, gave it a halo, a, a, a patina, a, a something around the other shows to know that it was associated with it. You know, and as much as Supernatural has meant to this network, you have tried, I, by my count, at least three times, correct me if I'm wrong here, to launch a spinoff out of Supernatural. And today, of, of course, or this week, you know, I should say, the, your network put a Black Lightning spinoff in development and you're, you've built out this huge Arrowverse over the years, but Supernatural has kind of proven, you know, where spinoffs just haven't worked. First of all, why do you think that those haven't worked? And beyond that, are you done trying at this point? They didn't work, I believe, at the end of the day because the audience truly believed in the Winchester family and the Winchester brothers. And um, unless you were very careful with what characters you might be able to do a spinoff with, uh, it just didn't connect. Uh, are we done thinking about a spinoff? No, we're not. Uh, there's a lot of mythology and legacy there. Uh, 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 we're obviously not doing an embedded spinoff this year. Obviously, we only have two episodes left to go. But, you know, we're always open to see, to carry on the supernatural universe if there's a way to do it. But it has to be, I believe, connected to the Winchester family. So are you in any active conversations for one? 
are there any actual plans that you can get into of like you're, you're seeing pitches or you're hearing ideas or continuing anything with, with some of the guys? We always hear ideas and there's many things I cannot discuss. <laughs> if you had to guess, how long do you think it'll be before people start having casual conversations, at least about rebooting the show? Because everything comes back. Nothing is ever gone. Do you think it'll be two years, three years, five years, 10 years? Etc. I think that's a conversation with Jensen and Jared uh, in some <laughs> ways. I think Jensen, Jensen came out, I think he said he's ready to do eight episodes in about a couple of years. So I, it was, I, was, I was left. I hope I'm still around and I hope it's with us. But, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, it depends. If Jared and Jensen want to do something on a limited basis, it's a phone call. And, you know, the CW will be into it. And whether or not We'll be allowed to be into it as a different conversation, but we would obviously commit in a heartbeat. But it's there. It's again. Now it's a reverse conversation. They want to come back and do some more. We're open to do it. Yeah. So save that for you know whenever we can have press tour again, and you can open with that re <laughs> that remark again. It, it, it's been a great. I, I've been lucky in my career. I've been associated you know, with many shows that have gone over a decade, which is a remarkable thing from Greys and Criminal Minds and Supernatural. I mean, Flash is now in its eighth season. Uh, there's no stopping that, I don't believe. So uh, to me, this is a bonus. And for me, I joined the network when Supernatural was in, in its sixth or seventh year. And so I've, I didn't have the beginning. I, I know all the history with, from Eric Kripke and everybody else of what it was designed to do. And it was supposed to be a five-year show, and then they got a phone call. Whoops, you got a sixth. Uh, I was there after that. Uh, so my belief in it supported it from a different point of view. Um, you know, you guys had seven episodes remaining to film or wrap production on when the pandemic shut everything down. How did the end of the series change because of the pandemic? And were you able to go up to set for one last time to see the guys? No, I did not make it to set. Uh, obviously, based on my own maturity, it wasn't a good idea to travel. Uh, and I wasn't a sexual personnel. <laughs> so <laughs> those two things are easy to address. Um, I wish I could have. I would have loved to have gone up there uh, to do that. Uh, it, it, the final two episodes, I think Bob Singer and Andrew have said it pretty well. It didn't change much. They were more precautions because of COVID and more quarantining ahead of time. But the basic elements of the final two episodes are all there. They were there before the shutdown. Uh, I have seen the final two episodes. They are marvelous. Uh, I, I can safely tell you tonight's episode, 19, you thought you think it's the final episode and you say, what can they do for the 20th? And let me tell you, they, they pulled it off. They pulled it off and great. It's just great. And to their credit, they gave a great um, goodbye to their fans at the very end of the show. So kudos to them. They did stuff that people just normally don't do. And, you know, and obviously, you know, the guys remain a huge part of this network. And you're remaining in business with Jared, who stars in the straight to series pickup, the reimagining of, of Walker, Texas Ranger. You know, obviously, these guys are, are almost the face of the network. But why, you know, for you, why was it important to keep him on on the CW? In many ways, they are the face of the network. You said it better than I could. Uh, many ways, uh, there's great trust between us. They in terms of how we operate, there's a great shorthand. 
I was thrilled that Jared wanted to come back. I congratulated Jensen on um, playing Soldier Boy on uh, The Boys. Um, I rather have him on our network, but you know, there's, he has a life to lead. But they are very much what the CW was, even though they started at the WB. They were very much the face of the network, as is Arrow and as was Flash and as a variety of different shows have come on and off. But at the end of the day, for the last my nine years, they were a major player in it. And just as a, a last question, you talked about being a fan of the show before and you talked about catching up on DVD. Time to put you on the spot. Give us a favorite episode or two or a favorite story arc from the long run of Supernatural. I actually think tonight's episode was one of my favorites. <laughs> it, it, it truly, truly was. You haven't seen it, but you'll see what exactly what I mean. Uh, I, 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 on the 20th episode, I cry a lot, you know, so it's kind of an interest. I actually had tears. A grown man with tears is not a healthy thing. But um, one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> I actually, I think it was the year that... Cass appeared. Misha's character appeared. I thought that 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 moment, because that character was vastly different when it first came out. So I think that's the third season. And, and what exact episode that was, I can't tell you. But that scene where Cass flexes out his his uh, wings was quite remarkable. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. The Supernatural series finale airs November 19th on The CW. Thank you for having me, and, and please watch and tweet and do whatever you want to do, but tweet in a meaningful, correct, and constructive manner. So, <laughs> speak to you all later. Number three. Up next, it is one of our favorite recurring segments in which I act confused as Leslie explains the latest in the carousel of executive changes across Hollywood. So, stop us if you've heard us Talk about this before, but it's been another busy week on the executive front with changes happening at Disney, Warner Media, and Universal TV. Leslie, break it down for us. If it feels like we've talked about these executive changes before, it's because we have, and it's happening so frequently. And if you really want to get a good handle on how fast and how much the industry is changing because of the pandemic, just think of this. I made a list the other day just off the top of my head of TV industry executives who have either gotten promoted or changed jobs or been forced out or fired. And that list just on the TV side was over 40 people. And it's just not showing any signs of ending at this point. So this week, Disney really got into the fray and Peter, entertainment chairman Peter Rice took a page seemingly from NBC Universal's playbook and is reorganizing his teams by content rather by network. The first wave of these changes came this week when Disney Channel president Gary Marsh and Nat Geo president Courtney Monroe saw their purviews expand. So what does this mean? It means that the guy from Disney Channel is now going to oversee all Disney branded content across all of the entertainment portfolio. So Gary Marsh, the Disney Channel exec, if there's a Disney show for kids and young adults and for families that will be developed for, say, Disney Plus or hypothetically Freeform or even ABC, uh, Hulu or any anywhere within the Disney portfolio, it's going to be under Gary Marsh's purview. And the same is true for Nat Geo's Courtney Monroe, an, another excellent executive who she's going to oversee Nat Geo content for the same portfolio, not just the linear network, but the entire entertainment portfolio. So we don't know too much about how else is, everything is changing, but 
they are creating some other content groups focused on marketing, which, you know, that's a, a bigger and much more in the weeds purview that doesn't necessarily impact our, you know, the day to day TV viewers. But there will be another wave of this coming. Eventually, it's going to trickle down to how these network leaders and streaming executives are, are going are going to operate. And then you've got, you know, I think it's three or four different Disney branded studios that all kind of exist under this one different umbrella and all are programming either for broadcast or for cable or for streaming. And it's basically there's a lot of redundancies. And when you hear redundancies during a pandemic, when earnings are taking a hit, that means layoffs. So that's coming down the road. And, you know, speaking of layoffs, Warner Media this week is reducing its workforce, cutting an estimated five to seven percent of its twenty five thousand employees. The most significant change on the TV side this week is the departure of Lisa Gregorian, the 30 year Warner Brothers TV veteran who most recently served as chief marketing officer. So what does this mean? If you've been to San Diego Comic-Con and gotten one of those fancy Warner Brothers bags, that was her. If you've seen the crazy amount of stuff that Warner Brothers does at Comic-Con, that's her. She basically created and defined how to market a show and how to use San Diego Comic-Con, one of the biggest pop culture events on the TV calendar, on the film calendar, on the calendar at all, to really market the the studio's programming. So if you went to one of the Friends pop-up events for its 25th anniversary, she created that. That was her brainchild. So sources say Gregorian was asked to stay on board, but opted to leave because her department was, get this, gutted by layoffs. So not surprising here. Um, and then just kind of wrapping up the week, you know, over at Universal Television, we've, we noted that former president Perlina Igbakwe was promoted to oversee all of NBCU's combined studio operations. Well, she has now promoted her number two, Aaron Underhill, to replace her as president of the studio. So yeah, it's a lot going on. And then, uh, you know, one thing I do want to mention, just wrapping up, speaking of new gigs, the great Chris McCumber, who stepped down earlier this year as USA Network and sci-fi president in the face of NBC Universal's reorganization, has a new gig and is now the president of Blumhouse Television, which is an exciting and smart move for that company. So lots going on, more to come. You had me at WB Comic-Con bags. That was the part, <laughs> of, that was the part of this conversation that I fully understood. There you go. Well, up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight. Number four. Our guest this week is Tracy Wigfield, who got her start on the Emmy winning writing team of 30 Rock. She has worked on shows including The Mindy Project and Hulu's Four Weddings and a Funeral, in addition to creating NBC's critical darling Great News. She currently is a showrunner on Peacock's Saved by the Bell sequel. Thanks for joining us, Tracy. Of course. Thank you, guys. Well, let's start at the beginning. How did the idea to revisit Saved by the Bell come together? Well, I, um, I I was always a big fan of the show, and I watched the show a lot when I was uh, a kid. And uh, a couple years ago, they they did a bunch of pop up say like Max restaurants in L.A. and in Chicago and other places. And I went to one um, with some friends who also like Saved by the Bell. And I remember thinking like wow, this is so crowded. And it seems like there's so many people my age who like loved this show and it had kind of a cult following. I wonder if you could do like, like how they did with 21 Jump Street, like a Saved by the Bell kind of movie or like the Brady Bunch movie or something. Um, and I asked Universal or I had my agent ask Universal what was going on with the rights. And at the time it was um, in development for something else that ended up not going forward. And so uh, about a year ago, um, Perlina called me and was like, Saved by the Bell's available, and I'm, I'm under a deal there. And 
um, she was like, would you want to do something with it? And I was like, yeah, because it seemed really fun, not even knowing what the idea would be. It seemed fun to kind of take that property that a lot of people seem to be attached to and do something with it. Well, how concrete are your actual memories of the original show? And and <laughs> and when you went and you actually got this gig, you know, how much did you rewatch and re-experience? Yeah, so I, you know, it, what's crazy is like the show was on more than in my chat, like in my memories, the show was on 24 hours a day all the time. Like it just was always, always on like I syndicated on like every channel. So, you know, I had seen every episode about a million times and I, you know, and I remember just like, I remembered very specific weird things from it. Like I think a lot of people who watched it growing up did, like I, I could, you know, I could win a Saved by the Bell trivia contest but when I, you know, when I went to, when I started breaking the pilot and like, and I started uh, and I went to pitch the show and stuff and it was actually happening, I made a commitment that I was like, all right, you have to rewatch the whole thing. And then oh there were goodness. questions of like, well, what's the whole thing, right? Like, are, is it, do I have to watch Miss Bliss? Do I have to watch the new class? So just because I, I have to, at the time I had one child, but now I have two, but like I, I, it was just to make it a little easier on myself. My rules were like, I started at, I watched all of Good Morning Miss Bliss, watched all of the real show, including, you know, the special, the Hawaiian hideaway and um, the summer when they were at the Malibu Shores Beach Club. And I watched the, and, and when they got married in Vegas and I watched the college years, but I did not watch the new class. <laughs> so that is not, that that's is where not, you draw the line. That is not canon on the show. Yeah. I don't know what happened in that. I couldn't watch. I like read some Wikipedia about it, but I couldn't watch those two. Well, I couldn't. But, so, but okay. As you're watching it, what struck you with your now no longer a young adult or teenager's eyes? What, what sort of stood out for you? Right. And that was sort of the fun of doing this was sort of revisiting it with, uh, you know, revisiting it as as an adult and also through a 2020 lens. It's like when you go back and it's kind of unfair to the original writers of the show, but it's like when you go back and watch anything, you know, a couple of things (laughs) struck me. It's like uh, one of our writers, this guy, um, uh, Dashiell Driscoll did a, uh, web series, how I found him, did a web series called Zach Morris's trash, where he like looks at, at, at episodes and talks about what a bad guy Zach is. And like, you know, certainly there's a lot of stuff like that stuff that hasn't aged well, like where the guys, you know, break it, break into the girl's locker room and take pictures of them half naked and put out a calendar and like make a lot of money. And they're the heroes of the story or whatever. Like there's a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, so I felt like our show was a fun opportunity to kind of do a little poking, like poke fun at that a little bit. But, you know, also I think it it made me go back and kind of think about, well, why did I like this so much as a kid? And it had, it had kind of a Brady Bunch quality to it where it was like, even as a kid, I knew it was kind of cheesy and fake. And it's like, well, high school can't really be that like safe and easy. And, and I think why I liked it as a kid was because it was like 90210 seemed really scary. Like people were like getting pregnant and like getting roofied and stuff. We're like on Saved by the Bell, like nothing bad ever happened. Like maybe Jesse got addicted to caffeine pills for, you know, half a day, but that was the worst. And so, you know, it felt like for my show, for the new version of the show, there was some, there was, 
something to say about, um, you know, using Bayside as this sort of magical place where these kids, maybe because of privilege, uh, they, they never have problems that can't be solved within 22 minutes. And then having, you know, more normal grounded kids from a real high school come into this school and be like, what the hell's going on with this place? So it felt like a fun way in. And, and nostalgia is kind of tough with a reboot like this because you're you're making fun of a lot of the things that were cheesy or silly about the original. But where is the line between winking at things <laughs> right. that everybody accepts as corny and just coming out and, God forbid, suggesting the original might not necessarily have been a great show? <laughs> I, I, I totally. And, you know, we'll see. Like, I don't I. I think what we have on our side is I genuinely loved the show as a child and watched. I, I couldn't watch. I couldn't, you know, have watched it all as a kid and then basically enjoyed watching it all again as an adult if I didn't love the show. And, and um, you know, and Franco Barrio, who's um, an EP and like my producing partner, he was a producer on the original. So like we joke like all the time we'll be recreating things or, you know, doing things that are kind of mocking out things on the show. And I'll be like, no, I want, I want the set to look like really shitty. Like it's made of paper, like on the original. And Franco's like, I made that set. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but you know, I, I hope people, everyone I know who's a fan of the show and it's a lot of comedy people too, who love the show as a kid, like part of the appeal is like, it was cheesy and and a little bit poking fun at it. And so my bet is that, uh, you know, that audience will come to this and enjoy it. But yeah, definitely. Anytime you do a reboot and you're messing with something that's tied to people's childhoods, you're just going to, yeah, get ire from people who are like, why are you messing with, you know, the thing that got me through middle school or whatever. You know, so at the same time, you know, when you're looking at, at going back into this world, how did you approach which original characters would and wouldn't be returning. Right. And, and especially when you factor in, you know, availability, right? Like sure. Mark Paul, of course, is a series regular on another show. Right. That's owned by a different studio. <laughs> right. So it was a little complicated. You know, when I went into it, I, uh, like, like I said, the, you know, th this, there had been a project they had been working on that didn't go forward. And so Elizabeth and Mario had a, already had a relationship with the studio and, you know, uh, Mario's on access and, you know, it, I, I think as a deal at Universal. So they, you know, they were available to be in all episodes. When I came in creatively, I mean, I, I, I was thinking kind of like, oh, the more the merrier. I would love to, you know, uh, as a viewer, I wouldn't want to turn tune into a Saved by the Bell reboot and not see, you know, not see some, if not all of the original cast and get to see what they're doing and, and you know, it, what is the updated version of their characters? That feels like half the appeal of it. And so I, I wanted them, uh, you know, as many of them as were available, we could work out. Um, the other thing to factor in was like, it is also a show very much about this new class and you want to spend a lot of time with them and invest in them and care about them as characters. So you're not just like fast forward where Zach and Kelly. So, you know, it was a prior. And so it's a lot of characters to take care of. Um, it, it, kind of how the story shook out. One of the, one of the new kids, uh, mom is Jesse and the other one's, uh, parents are Zach and Kelly. So, you know, we were able, when I met with Mark Paul, uh, you know, and, and Tiffany was also a series regular on a Netflix show at the time. And so they, they could, were able to be in, 
um, a handful of them. And then uh, we reached out to Lark and uh, Lark ha- is, has a cameo in one. And, and so we were able to get most of them, but I'm open to whatever. If there's a season two, like I could, you know, <laughs> get them all in whoever, you know. You mentioned twice now that that there was this other take um, but ahead of yours. Right. How much of what that was made its way into what you're doing now, into the show, oh, into the show I, we're seeing was, now, and how much... No, that was a, a writer who's a, uh, who's a friend of mine. Um, I never read it. It, it. it was a different project that... Um, and I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know or couldn't answer like what the tone of that was or, or what um, ended up happening with it. So none, hopefully. <laughs> and was there anything that, that Mario and Elizabeth said that they were going to do in that first one that kind of, that they brought over into this take or? I don't is there- think so. Cause I think, yeah. I really don't know that much about it. I think it was kind of, uh, I think it just was a script, I think. And I don't know how, what their uh, involvement was. I don't know if they... I honestly don't know, if, if, you know, if, if what, uh, how much they were involved with it or read it or anything. In an ideal world for you, is there a version of this show that could function without all of the originals where you could actually do episodes that don't involve them at all? Yeah. Oh, and there are. There are like the, you know, uh, m- many of the episodes don't have um, not actually none of them like Jesse and, and Slater and all of them. But you know, many of the episodes, the A story is these new kids adjusting to life at Bayside. And so, um, you know, we get a lot of comedy out of these new kids coming into this place and uh, sort of these two different worldviews of these very privileged kids and these kids who come from a kind of an underfunded L.A. school kind of butting heads together. And so that is the new show. And, you know, and. It, it it was just, it, they were just kind of two different things we were balancing, but it was, you know, thank God, very fun to write for this new show that had there not been, uh, you know, existing IP, this is a show that I could have, that I feel like I could have pitched and could have been a show. Um, you know, out, we just have that extra element of it takes place at Bayside and we often see old friends from Bayside there too. So speaking of, of the old friends, what kind of conversations did you have with the original stars about what they wanted to do or what, you know, or if they even had hesitations or do they, they have opinions so, on what their, what yeah, the characters have been they were to? so game. They were really, and, you know, going into this, I had no idea. Like I, you know, you kind of, when you do a reboot, you kind of like are just accepting who these folks are and, you know, and, and I, I honestly didn't even know, like Mario Lopez is a, is like Will Ferrell. He's like a great comic actor. Like people are going to die. He's so, but I had no idea. I was like, I don't know. He's like a host of a, an entertainment show. Like I didn't know, but and, you know, and Elizabeth's so funny and, and uh, like Tiffany and Mark, I was shocked at how game they were to kind of make, make fun of themselves and make fun of their own characters and how, you know, obviously they were funny on the original show, but, um, you know, you, you just didn't know if it would translate to single cam uh, and and what it would be like. And they all were like really uh, they were really game and they liked the concept. And, you know, Elizabeth, I think very smartly was was protective of Jesse and just making sure 
Comedy-wise, I feel like often uh, comedy writers will will be like, "Oh, the funniest thing is like your life's the worst. Your you know your marriage is bad, and your your uh, you have a bad job, and you're a loser. That's funny." Where and and Elizabeth was very careful in in a really smart way to be like, "But a lot of girls looked up to Jesse and really cared about her and what happened to her. So it was important that she is kind of at Bayside for a different reason than." Mario is back at Bayside. He's just a, you know, he's just a terrible, um, terrible loser. <laughs> but she was fine. <laughs> well, along those lines, I, I do think it's it's notable that a lot of the returning characters, they're successful on one level, but in other levels, they're not necessarily good people. And so given that the whole point of the original series was that they were learning these lessons on a weekly basis, where right. do you feel like the sort of the genre went wrong for these people? What did how did how did the original <laughs> Saved by the Bell fail these young men and women? <laughs> Right, right, right. But, you know, isn't that the premise of every show? <laughs> you know, it's not like on Cheers, like, like you know, Sam learned the lesson and then he wasn't that way anymore. That's every show. They learn the lessons every week. And it, it was a kid's show, too. So, or, a, you know, a, 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 it was like a Saturday morning show. So, you know, they, I don't ever want to say... I, they were supposed to learn lessons every week. And, and in this show, they learn lessons every week, too. But, uh, you know, there it felt like there was something that was really fun about kind of taking what we knew about these old characters and just, you know, it, expanding upon it. Um, you know, it's Zach, it, it's Zach Morris exactly as you knew him trying to, you know, get out of doing homework and screwing people over and conning people out of $50, except now he's the governor of California. Like, it felt fun to try to use those exact characters, but explode it as adults. Right. And, you know, it's, you know, you mentioned that obviously the original aired on, on Saturday mornings and it was a multi-camera, obviously geared for a specific audience right. in that slot. Whereas this is a single cam that's made for the streaming era you know, I, I'm curious when you're making the show, when you're writing the show and you're filming it and, and you know, designing, you know, the, the sets with the, the, the quote unquote paper walls tonally, what is the audience that that you're aiming for with this? Right. Show? It's such a good question. And we'll see. I mean, the, <laughs> ideally, <laughs> I, I like in success, I wanted to be able to bring in me like the person the person who is a comedy fan and likes the you know tonally it's not so different than other stuff I've worked on like my you know my my show on NBC great news or you know I was on 30 rock or the Mindy project like it's not so different than one of those kind of single camera fast-paced um uh you know adult primetime comedies. But so if you are a person who likes those, especially if you're a per and if you're a person who liked the original, it feels like that's, you know, that's an, a very easy sell. Um, but ideally it also is just a funny comedy that kind of you can watch if you did not watch the original show. And, you know, and it does feel like it, it is the kind of thing you can watch with your kids. Like if you're around my age and you love the show, but your kids have no idea what it is or your parents have no idea what it is, um, you in quarantine can kind of all sit together and watch the show. It has It's on Peacock, but it does have sort of a, a networky feel to it in that it, it is, you know, it, it can be watched by families. Not to say it's not funny, it is, but... 
Um, my hope is that a bunch of people can all find something in it. It's funny because in one episode, a character references uh, Rihanna's bitch better have my money. And I immediately had a visceral reaction to someone on Saved by the Bell saying bitch. And, and so I was curious, what what can you actually say here and do here that maybe they couldn't in the original? Right. So definitely it's edgier without a doubt. And, you know, and I think the comedy is just more sophisticated is the biggest difference. Sometimes, sometimes it's just like John Michael Higgins falling into an orchestra pit and his, you know, penis gets sucked into a tuba. Like sometimes it's that. Let's not pretend we're making you know, high art here. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, we could, you could push the envelope, but it's like, also, it was just a conversation we were always having in the writer's room. It's like, also, I don't want to like see Slater's butt. Like, (laughs) you don't want it to be, you don't want it to be like too edgy that it's like, oh, what is this? But I think, you know, I I come from a uh, broadcast comedy background. And so I'm very comfortable in that space. So I, you know, that it didn't feel limiting to me at all. And, and I, I think even if we wanted to make it, it's not the kind of show I think that you would want to translate to like a Riverdale kind of thing. You know, it's not the kind of show where it's like, whatever, where it's like, um, Zach's doing, yeah, Zach's doing heroin or something like it, it, it's pretty in its bones. It's really squeaky clean. So, you know, well, along those lines, I mean, the original series is is about these crazy hormonal teens and yet it's a weirdly chased show. Like I feel like probably so like I feel like probably Zach and Kelly never got to second base in their entire time no. in high school. It, is right. this a hornier Saved by the Bell? And would you want it to be? <laughs> It, you know what? It, it kind of plays on that a little. We talked about that a lot in the room. It's like there was this weird thing going on where it was like, yeah, super, super clean cut and like conservative. But like the, everyone on it's just like so hot. And, and every plot is just, because, you know, it's this weird mix, I guess, of I'm sure we have it on our show, too, of adults writing for for kids. But um, yeah, the kids are like they all looked like really old and very attractive. And they're always just like. All of all of Zach's on the original, his motivations were just like, I got to get Kelly in a car. I got to get her in a car all the time. Um, I don't know. I think it's the same. (laughs) I think it's kind of like it's a little hornier, but it's not. No, it's it's not like a, you know, whatever. It's not Gossip Girl or something. It's (laughs) my sister is writing on the Gossip Girl reboot, Um, but it's not that it's, you know, it's there's definitely like love triangles and romance but it's pretty the jokes are edgier but it's pretty uh clean you can watch it with your you know your kid and your grandma okay so not saved by the bell euphoria it's not euphoria (laughs) no we haven't we have an episode where we a girl where we have like a euphoria sea story but it is not no it is not euphoria um you know, it's hard, really hard to follow up a question about how horny the new Saved by the Bell mm-hmm. is, but I'm going to try. So you exec produce um, this new take alongside the original series creator, Peter Engel. Yes. What kind of conversations did you have with him about how these characters have or haven't changed? And was there anything that, that he specifically wanted to see or not see? I, I don't I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I've never spoken to him. <laughs> 
I, I should. And I was just saying to uh, Franco Barrio, who is, you know, he had, uh, he, uh, we had his blessing and Franco, uh, who is my producing partner, who uh, I, you know, who had a lot of input on the show and, and we had a lot of conversations like that. He talks to him and, and actually what's, what's a sin is Peter was supposed to come do like a cameo in one episode. We needed like, and we needed like an old man who had a young, hot wife. And Frank was like, oh, he'd be perfect. And he was like game and going to do it. And it was like literally the week before Corona. And he was like, ah, I don't know if I'm coming out of my house for this. And I was all excited because I was going to get to meet him. But um, it didn't happen. And then when we came back to shoot it, he obviously was like, no, I, I, this does not feel like worth risking my life for. But I've never, no, I've never had a conversation with him. But I'd like, I will. I'd like to. Maybe I will after this. So we want to talk a little bit about some of the characters in this, but first I want to talk about a character who's missing. So Dustin Diamond is one of the main actors who is not returning. But more than that, I was struck by the fact that there isn't a screech equivalent here. There, There is not I a conspicuous nerdy archetypal character. I was curious what went through your mind on that. And nerds were such a big, like those very, those really over the top cartoonish nerds were a big part of the original. I mean, I guess in a way, the main girl, Daisy, is kind of the nerd, but, but it might, I don't know. It, it kind of, when I was, when I was like break when I was coming up with characters for the show, I thought about it and I kept kind of coming back. I was having a hard time finding like, I don't know, finding sort of like the 2020 version of this, just like a normal kid who's good at STEM <laughs> and everyone respects, <laughs> like, is that what it is? Like, it, you know, it, it just, there was nothing that sort of sparked for me as like who that is. Like we talk about um, Screech's character and like there's little Easter eggs throughout the show of what he's doing now. And, um, you know, and if you look, <laughs> you can find some if you look for them. And, you know, I, I, uh, there this season there wasn't there wasn't really he wasn't tied to the any of the new characters or anything but like that's not to say uh, it's not open for the future no not knowing what stories will be or anything for a cameo maybe is there room for a Haley Mills cameo at some point and where is Tor and where is Tori in this universe Tori's mentioned in a joke um, Miss, we kept joking about Miss Bliss being like the party drug that uh, instead of Molly that all the kids do at Bayside. But, um, I, I, we, I don't, I don't think we mentioned Miss Bliss in the show. Oh, I love Haley Mills. I would love that. You know, one of the things that we wanted to to talk about too is, you know, whether you wanted this to be foregrounded or not, there absolutely is a commentary here on public education and right. its struggles. If we were to take you know, this message seriously, how would you explain it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, part of, I, I think sort of naively when I, when I was pitching an idea of like, oh, it's like Bayside is, was supposed to be a school in the Palisades. And, you know, and if you're talking about this place that kind of is squeaky clean and, and really safe and really nice and, and, you know, nothing bad ever happens to these kids, it's like, well, immediately it becomes a story about privilege. And then if you extend that to the reality of it, it's like, well, then that also is a story about, you know, education and equality and race at a certain point. And so uh, it, it, I guess, obviously, listen, it's a Saved by the Bell reboot. It's not 
you know, it's not a David Simon, like, trenchant drama about education in L.A. It's, it is not. But I, I think there was something that felt worth saying about how unfair uh, public schools are in in California, but in America, that, you know, there's public schools. They're all supposed to be the same, and they really aren't. And there, there are schools that, just because of how they get funding, there are schools that are within, you know, within miles of each other that are completely different worlds. And it's, you know, I don't have a solution for it. This show is never going to have a solution for it. But it just is you know, an unfair reality for high school kids today. And it felt kind of like something worth saying. It's it's OK not to have a solution because you just expressed a more cogent policy on public education than Betsy DeVos did in <laughs> in four thank years. You. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Character wise, um, absolutely want to single out uh, Josie Tota, who is a breakout here um, and making her debut um, as a transgender character in her in her first role since transitioning. Yeah. How much of that of, of her story will you be leaning into? You know, honestly, not too much. She's, you know, a lead on the show and is in a lot of the show. But um, the fact that she's trans, it, I, I think it's, you know, there's one episode where uh, where we go into it a little bit, but it was really and I, I wrote the role for Josie just, you know, kind of thinking about making a show where you're like, okay, so you need six hilarious, beautiful, um, really skilled teenagers. Oh, that seems easy to find. And at least I knew, I knew Josie and, um, she had been on my, uh, my friend Mindy and Charlie's show champions. And I remember being at a table read for that and she was so good. And so I was like, well, this feels fun. And, um, and it felt like a character I had never seen before. And so I, you know, I met with her and pitched it and she was on board, but it was kind of important to her that her being trans was not the headline every episode and not even, you know, uh, and it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel necessary to the story or, um, you know, a story I personally even wouldn't know how to tell correctly. This isn't this isn't 10 episodes about, you know, her uh, her being trans. Well, I mean, her her comic voice is uh, and I compare this in the, in the most positive way to uh, Nicole Richie on Great News. I, I feel like there's <laughs> such I just write the same thing. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Why are you outing my secret? I can write five characters. <laughs> Well, okay. Talk, talk, talk a bit about talk a bit about that particular voice, and if there's room, and if any. By the way, it's also Jenna Maroney. It's the same. It's the same. <laughs> no, I, and, I, and I feel like I. Remember... I'll ne- I won't never work again. <laughs> well, talk about a bit about what that voice is, and if you see any potential amusement in maybe bringing in Nicole Richie as a. Oh my god, that's her mom. That's so funny. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Um, yeah, Dan will yeah. take a co EP credit on that. Yes. Episode. Okay, it's fine. The, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, it's like a voice I love to, and obviously they're, I'm joking, but they, they are different and each, and each actor you sort of write to their strengths or whatever. Um, Josie is just so good. She talks so fast. She's so good. She's like, but I mean, she's been doing this forever as part of it, but she's just like made to say jokes. Like she's so funny and good. Um, and I, I just love, I love kind of a, not, you know, Josie's character is 
I think meaner than um, than Nicole's character was on Great News. She's she's a little she's the high school uh, kind of um, queen bee version of that. But um, you know, I, I, there's just something so funny to me about poking fun at really privileged people who are just sort of existing uh, in you know in kind of a world onto their own in in this bubble where they they sort of um, don't understand how normal people live and operate. And, uh, you know, and Josie just plays into that so easily. She just, like, was this person immediately. Now, with great news, that was a show that that NBC didn't always necessarily know what to do with. But I've sort of <laughs> I've sort of noticed people subsequently in the streaming world discovering that show. Yes. Have, have you been feeling that in the past couple of years? I have. I have. You know, when it was on NBC... Uh, you know, I, I was joking yesterday, like my uncle would be like, you have a show on television, like nobody knew about it. And it's, you know, it's not all their fault. Like it, it's just hard, I think, to find an audience. And it was only on two seasons. And, you know, I, I really am grateful that they gave it a second season because it, it's just hard to get people on board with a brand new show on network. And, um, but I have found like that after it was canceled and it was on Netflix, the two seasons, like so much more as though it was premiering. I got so much more feedback from people being like, I love this show. When's the third season? It's like, guys, that was like in 2016. It's never <laughs> it isn't coming back. But um, yeah, I got so much positivity and it was really exciting that people a lot of people found it and liked it. And uh, even over quarantine, I felt like where people are just kind of like skimming through Netflix and and have watched everything like a lot of people it seems like have found it and sort of binged it um and you know responded to it which has been nice you know just reverting back to Saved by the Bell for a second here you know in success is this a show that that you could see running multiple seasons and even getting for example your own college years Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I do think so. Like, you know, it, I mean, that's always the thing you're afraid of where, when you do, and that, that was part of the reason why I was very careful about like, how much are we using the old guys and how much are, you know, the characters from the old show and how much are we spending time with and investing in this new class? Because it's like, that version where, you know, it's like 90210, I guess, when they did it, it's like, you know, you tell your jokes about the old characters and then you're like, got it. Now, you know, um, now do California Dreams. With this, I think, I I think it, at least developing it felt like the same amount of work you kind of put into creating a new show from scratch. It, it is its own show outside of the fact that, um, you know, it's in this place with these old characters. And, and I do think it could go many seasons, um, seeing these new kids and, you know, and following them because I, I hopefully, uh, I feel like by the end of it, you're invested in them and you get to care about them and see what happens with them. And we just like to always end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying lately? Oh, okay. That's great. Really, really dark things. I think like I, um, so I just finished Lovecraft Country. I'm a little late, which I really liked. And, um, and I, uh, I just watched this show that no, no person on earth has, uh, watched other than me called The Third Day. You heard of the show? Sure. Did you watch I, it? No one's watched well, it's, it. It's kind of my job. So, you know. <laughs> oh, well, you watch it, of course. Yeah. But I like that too. I, I, I'm watching Unsolved Mysteries right now. 
just what is what is oh Fargo I love this new season of Fargo um no comedies nothing that's funny just like <laughs> just kill it <laughs> over and over again. what is the cool thing to be the cool thing to be watching is the Queen's Gambit right that's the cool answer probably probably for this I, week I don't watch, yeah for this week I haven't watched this, it yet yeah. but I, it is on my list excellent awesome well thank you so much Tracy for joining us we really appreciate it thank you guys so much Saved by the Bell makes its Peacock debut on Thanksgiving, November 25th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are The Crown, which returns for its fourth season on Netflix. His Dark Materials is back for its second on HBO. Alex Ryder debuts as the first scripted series on Amazon's IMDb TV. David E. Kelly returns to broadcast with ABC's Big Sky. And speaking of broadcast, you've got a bunch of returning shows making their long-awaited debuts, including The Blacklist, Bob Hart's Abishola, All Rise, NCIS, both FBI shows, For Life, and, and A Million Little Things. Dan, what you got this week? Phew, that's a lot of TV. That's a lot of TV. A lot of TV that I still haven't gotten to. Uh, there's there's just a lot of stuff. Um, definitely the first thing I want to start with is, is The Crown. Uh, this is... One of the best traditional prestige shows going on on television. It, it may not be the most formally inventive or edgy or cool show out there. It just is really, really good. It's just really smart and beautifully produced. And Peter Morgan, uh, whose interview with our podcast from last year, you should definitely check out, uh, has continued to steer this ship so confidently through the life of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the fourth season is heavily invested in the Charles and Diana soap opera, and it includes the introduction of Lady Diana Spencer. And it, it's such an utter star-making performance by Emma Corrin, uh, who I don't believe I've ever seen anywhere before. And she traces this character from really just a young girl to an uncertain young woman and through the beginnings of the discomfort with Prince Charles, uh, who continues to be played really wonderfully by by Josh O'Connor. I had completely forgotten that neither Josh O'Connor or Aaron Doherty, who plays Princess Anne, were nominated for Emmys last year. And, and that's ridiculous because they were both absolutely fantastic in the third season and continue to be great. Uh, but I, I think Emma Corrin will be nominated this year because it is it, it is just designed as a star making role. That is that is what it is, because Princess Diana was a star making presence. And so they they did a really good job casting this part. There is no question. Uh, the other thing that people will be talking about is is Gillian Anderson as uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. I think that's likely to be a little bit more polarizing. I definitely have talked to colleagues who, let's say, found her a little bit too much. Uh, the The way I interpret it is that Margaret Thatcher was as a presence, perhaps a little bit too much. And I think that uh, that Anderson's performance captures a fair amount of that. But it's definitely it's not one of those performances where you forget that the person involved is acting. It is it is a busy, busy acting performance. I think she's very good, but I completely understand why some people aren't going to warm to her. There is a feeling in this season that Queen Elizabeth is fading a little bit towards the background, that it's a little bit less her story. But the story is, of course, called The Crown. It's not called The Lives of 
Queen Elizabeth II. And, and I think that this season and really last season also continued kind of the exploration of the idea of what it means for the crown to exist in perpetuity, what it means to be the queen for decades, you know, longer than many or most, and to get to a certain point where you start thinking, okay, who's next? How does this continue after I leave? And I think that it is all built into Olivia Coleman's performance, which at times is not as overtly dramatic and big as sometimes the show has let her and Claire Foy be, but there's so much thought going on in the performance and there's so much dialogue free acting that I think is just really wonderful to watch. Anyway, this, this really is one of my favorite shows on TV. It, you know, somehow it, it almost always manages to fall out of my top 10 each year, but that doesn't mean that in the balance, this is not a, a great, great show. And the new season is, is really a terrific continuation. And if you'd like to go back and listen to our interview with Peter Morgan, that's in episode 48 from last November. It was a really good interview. Uh, he is always one of the smarter people to talk to uh, of of less prestige, but similar British accent, I guess, is Alex Ryder, which we mentioned earlier in this podcast uh, is on Amazon's IMDb TV, which still feels like a really cumbersome way to refer to anything. Basically, Amazon TV's streaming service is uh, free and features commercials. And that's about all you need to know. You can watch it through your Amazon account. Uh, this is an adaptation of Anthony Horowitz's novel series, which has 13 books and counting, I believe. You, you might remember that at some point there was a very, very bad attempt to turn it into a film franchise, uh, Stormbreaker, I believe, and it failed. The new version is is better. It's it feels more like it captures the flavor of the book series and, and a tone that could work going forward. I, I don't think that it's necessarily great. I think there were choices made in how to adapt it in which it's both an origin story but also it has to do a lot of explaining of the plot of what is the second book. And so it feels like the pieces are constantly being set and reset in ways that make it feel like it's maybe not moving forward. Uh, Otto Ferrant plays the main character who is a teenager who is uh, who discovers that one of his relatives is in a part of the British Secret Service and is recruited to go undercover at a mysterious prep school in the French Alps. Uh it, there, there's a solid cast. I think there's so much exposition that I'm not sure that anyone is is necessarily giving a great performance, but I can absolutely see how this would set up a world that people might want to follow. It's it's fun. It could probably be a little bit more fun. I think it could definitely use a little bit more money because the the stunts probably lack a necessary scale, but it's a large improvement over the the movie. So there's that. Um, I don't want to do a full review of Big Sky, uh, which premieres next week on ABC, in large part because I am still processing it. And I will have a full review next week, and I'm still kind of bouncing around in my head. Sort of the basic background is that this is David E. Kelly's triumphant return to broadcast television. I mean, it's not like he's been away from television. He just no. had <laughs> he just had that HBO show that premiered three weeks ago and that some people seem to be really liking. Uh, but he did say that he was done with broadcast television. So where, that's where part he, of why this is notable. Did he say that to us in an interview at some point, Leslie? 
Yes, he he has said that in multiple interviews, including on TV's Top 5 in episode 38 from a year ago, September. God, it feels like a zillion years ago and a zillion and the, the before, the before, the before. Phew. So many showrunner spotlight interviews since then. So anyway, um, it is based to some degree on the novel The Highway by C.J. Box, and it really has a, a wonderful cast. Uh, the, the stars are ostensibly Kylie Bunbury, uh, Catherine Winnick, who people should know from Vikings, uh, getting to be all contemporary and stuff, uh, Ryan Phillippe, John Carroll Lynch, a ton of great character actors who you will recognize and enjoy. As to what the show is, it's really kind of hard to explain. Uh, the thing that I can say with some certainty is that it really should be airing as a two-hour premiere. The premiere is not exactly what the show is. The premiere kind of sets you up for an inversion. And as a result, the premiere is more of a, I would say it's more of a horror show than I expected, as in it's really more like a Criminal Minds type show with scary people terrorizing teenage girls. And as such, it's not what I expected. And it's not, I don't think, what the show is trying to be. Now, as to whether the second episode necessarily exhibits what the show is trying to be or works itself, that might be a different question. But I am really certain that people who people who care are going to want to watch the first and second episodes together. I, I think the first episode really doesn't stand alone. So that's that's what I'm going to say. I'm still batting this one around in my mind. Uh, but that is that is my takeaway on on Big Sky. But certainly of the things to watch this week, there is no question that The Crown is the thing that people want to be watching because it is a very, very good show to begin with. And the new season is really terrific. So crown up, baby. And we'll have full coverage of the season on THR.com. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This, of course, feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really, really like us, write a little review thing. It helps with search placement and all of that fun stuff, and it really helps spread the word of mouth. We appreciate it. We are always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter, comments, concerns, criticisms, corrections, etc. If you have questions for us, however, we strongly recommend you guys email us for future mailbag segments at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, my friend. <laughs>